today. Let's, uh, let's hope that we will finish up Psalm 30. Let's start by reading, and let's, this time let's read in the Altar Translation. Right. For those, um, Nina, this is a, he's a professor of Hebrew literature in, in uh, Berkeley, I believe. Oh. Anyway, so this is an individual translation. With the, all, the, all the others are committee translations. This is just a dude. Altar. Psalm. Song for the dedication of the house for David. I shall exalt you, Jehovah, for you drew me up. And you gave no joy to my enemies. Jehovah, my God, I cried to you, and you healed me. Jehovah, you brought me up from Sheol, gave me life from those gone down to the pit. Hymn to the Jehovah, O his faithful, acclaim his holy name. But a moment in his wrath, life in his pleasure. At evening one beds down weeping, and in the morning glad song. As for me, I thought in my quiet days, never will I stumble. Jehovah, in your pleasure, you made me stand mountain strong. When you hid your face, I was stricken. To you, O Jehovah, I call, and to the Master I plead. What profit in my blood, in my going down deathward? Will dust acclaim you? Will it tell your truth? Hear, Jehovah, and grant me grace. Jehovah, become helper to me. You have turned my dirge to a dance for me, undone my sackcloth, and bound me with joy. Oh, let my heart hymn you, and be not still. Jehovah, my God, for all time I claim you. Okay, so Psalm 30, theoretically, for the dedication of the temple, depending on how the first part is is translated, a Psalm of David. Um, But, of course, as we discussed, the temple was not built during the time of David. And so this would be a, if it was indeed for the temple, we talked about maybe David's palace, but if it was for the temple, then this would be, they used an old Davidic Psalm for the dedication of the temple under Solomon. And we've gone through this, and the context is, generally speaking, David had something go wrong. I tend to think it was a sickness, um, but it could have been a wound, all right? The psalm doesn't have any idea of enemies in it, at least those who are attacking him, all right? And so there's not this, as you often see in the psalms, save me from my adversaries, they're trying to kill me. There's not that. Though that could theoretically be behind this, it's just not as clear. And so he's going through here, and we've, we've discussed through things, and you know, one thing we've been doing over the last few weeks is comparing how translations tend to approach things. Uh, we might recall that Alter, for example, and the KJV tend to like to keep the imagery closer to its original language and interpret it less. The Net Bible really likes to get rid of the imagery and just make the interpretation. And so you don't see the imagery there as nearly as much. The ESV, um, it just depends. All right, and we'll see that after we're done with Psalm 30. We'll see this in another example soon. Alter tends to like that. It tends to like to keep the imagery there. I don't know if I mentioned that. So if we would, let's go down and let's go to verse 10. And so in verse 10, we actually talked through last time. 
Hear, O Lord, and have mercy on me. O Lord, deliver me. And that's the Net Bible. In verse 11, let's take a minute and think about that and think about the imagery in the four different translations and gather your thoughts and then we'll discuss. So, one minute. Yeah, focus on 11 right now. So the reason why, and this is actually true of, I think, all, maybe not all the Psalms, but lots of them, um, in the Hebrew Bible, they don't start, like if you, if you go to the first page, um, the Hebrew Bible starts with verse 1 is the dedication, or the, the, the superscription, where usually in our English Bibles, we don't actually include that as a verse. It's just, here's the title, and it... And you start, for example, ESV with, I will extol you. But in the Hebrew Bible, they just say, no, I will extol you. That's the second verse. The first verse is the, the superscription. And it is important to notice here that, that these superscriptions, you know, often in your modern translations, you'll, they'll have like a subheading to describe something. Right? Those subheadings aren't in the original text in any way at all. Uh, those are just helpful, right? things that modern translators put in. Um, these superscriptions are actually in the Hebrew Bible. All right? uh, generally speaking, all right, these are often going to be um, from after the time that the psalm was written. That is clearly the case for this one. If it is a dedicatory psalm for the temple, then this, could be, this would be years after David wrote this psalm. But that's why it's one verse off. It's just, they, they're like, yeah, we're just going to include this as verse 1. Well, what, what verse is in English? Is it verse 0? I guess, if you want to address it that way, you can. So that's why it's, it's one verse off. It's a good question, though. Okay, so for verse 11, what's, what's the image here? A funeral become... A funeral become a dance. You don't normally dance at a funeral, right? You have turned my mourning into dancing, all right? Um, what's parallel with mourning, and what's parallel with dancing? Mourning, sackcloth, dancing, gladness, all right? Um, okay. Now, so you've got, as often as the case, in... Hebrew poetry. You've got one verse, and then you've got a repetition. All right. So you've got you've turned my lament into dancing. You've removed my sackcloth and covered me with joy. All right. And so it's 
What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you wearing? What are you wearing? All right? It's morning dancing. You've taken my sackcloth off and put on party clothes. Right? It doesn't say that. It just says, covered me with joy. The idea there is, you've covered me with joy. What does that mean? Well, happy clothes. All right? But they don't say happy clothes. All right? But that's, that's basically the idea. You're taking off your mourning clothes, your sackcloth, and you're putting on party clothes, essentially. Or joy clothes. Or maybe just regular clothes and you're, and you're happy. So that's verse 11. And then verse 12. That my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Forever. Now, in all the translation, these are, these are all very similar. And so you've got this hymn where David is starting off, if we think about the general sequence of going on. He's saying, I will, I will extol you in verse 1. I cried and you healed me. So this is a psalm of praise because God did, in fact, help David. And in verse 5, you've got this basic idea that God's wrath... All right, or God's, uh, in this case, you, you would call it God's uh, discipline of his people. All right, There's a temporary nature to it. In verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So potentially, there was judgment involved here, potentially. But that's okay, David's not concerned. Because the discipline is temporary. Because the goal of the discipline, and we know this theologically to be true, the goal of discipline in the Christian life, all right, is it's rough for a little bit so that you can then be better and then be full of joy. And that's exactly where we ultimately got in verse 11. You turned my mourning into dancing, and you've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. What I want to do now is I want to give you another image, and this is going to be from what we're going to read next. And I want you to think about it. So this is from the King James. You might guess from the the that I'm putting up here. I want you to think about this. Because generally speaking, what we want to do Whenever you're looking at poetry, you first you don't want to jump to the meaning. You want to think about the imagery. What is the imagery trying to express? Right? Because that's ultimately where you're going to get your imagery. What is this imagery here? And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee, that no more of thy name be sown. What does that mean? First of all, let's identify the imagery. Think a minute. All right? It's taken out of context, but this 
it'll, you probably get it though. What's the imagery? It's an agricultural imagery, all right? This is not a sewing, all right, as in sewing clothing imagery, that no more thy name be sown, okay? So we've identified it's agricultural. What would it mean for thy, thy name to not be sown? Or, conversely, what would it mean for thy name to be sown? What's that? To have descendants, okay? Or not, right? With the with the no, right? If you've got if you've got a wheat field and you've got wheat, and then you don't sow the wheat seed, you get no more wheat, right? You get no more descendants. And so therefore, that no more of thy name be sown means I'm gonna cut you off. You're gonna die childless. Or you might have children, but your children are gonna die. All right, so that's clearly what this, this is referring to. So this sounds bad. So let's see if we can figure out who it's about. So turn to the prophet Nahum. Nahum. Yeah, this is one of those two-pagers. Oh, two and a half pages in mine. So close to Mm-hmm. Right before Habakkuk. Mm-hmm. We know who it's about from the first verse. Who's it about? Nineveh. Nineveh. Okay. Nineveh is a city. What is the country name generally associated with Nineveh? Assyria. Assyria. That's right. So from a this already sets up a time frame. All right. Uh, this is an oracle about Nineveh slash about Assyria. So, yeah, so we have to think, okay, when was Assyria relevant? All right. When was Assyria, uh, when did God maybe need to, if it's an oracle about Assyria, and it's probably bad. All right. It is bad. It is bad. All right. So time frame, anybody know, generally speaking, if you know dates or just the flow of history, what are we talking about here? Okay, so this is going to get you to the to the 600s, right? At the at the very earliest, right? This is going to get you 722-ish, 730s. That's the earliest because what happened in 722? Destruction of the Northern Kingdom. And so now that means, all right? Clearly, if this happens to be a oracle of destruction about Nineveh, all right, then it must be after that, because if Assyria conquered the northern kingdom in 722, they must still have been around in 722, all right? So that means basically 721 or after, okay? Uh, do we have a time period that this clearly is too late for? 
Do we know? What's that? I had to look up the date of when Nineveh was, was destroyed. The next date we should mem- memorize. 587. All right, so 587 would be when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, all right, and ultimately destroyed it. They conquered it before that. Okay, so Babylon was the boss in 587. Assyria was the boss in 722. Nineveh was destroyed by Babylon and the Medes in 612. So, this is essentially talking about the year 612. Since this is an oracle against Nineveh. Right? Now, when was it written? It was written before this. All right? Probably written about 30 years before this. Because, well, we'll see that as we go through. I won't say why. Okay, so we've got an oracle against Nineveh, a short oracle. All right, and this is a book as a vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Let's read the first five verses. I'll read it. ASV, I'm not giving you all translations, so I'll just read this. So, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Keep going. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. So through that, God, this is talking about God. All right. So the focus here is not directly on Nineveh so much. This is just describing God and his relationship to whom? The earth, right? Shows how he has dominion, dominion over it. It does show, that's, yes, that's the theological point. But it's, who's he talking, who's this relevant to? This is especially relevant to his enemies. Yes, that's right. And so, yes, he's going to talk about his anger, all right, and use a lot of imagery to talk about his general dominion over the earth, just like you said. But the main thing is, because this should make his enemies be very, very afraid. All right, so let's go through this bit by a bit. So you got in verse 2, and we're going to focus on the, on the imagery. And so verse 2, the Lord is jealous and avenging, avenging and wrathful, vengeance on his adversaries, keeping wrath for his enemies. So this is not a focus on Judah. This is a focus on, in this case, Nineveh, clearly. The Lord is slow in anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now here is a bunch of imagery. Let's talk about these things. What does it mean to say that in his way, his way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet? What's the imagery, and what's it mean? Yeah. The clouds are his feet means he's very far above us. 
and then the whirlwind and storm, you can't stand against it. Like if you're caught in the midst of a whirlwind or a storm, yeah. it's so strong and um, and kind of un unknowable too. We think of it as chaotic, but it actually follows rules. The storms yeah. follow rules, but we can't understand them, especially this time, I guess. Yeah. And you can't stand against it. It's going to flatten you. Yeah, the, the, the king of Nineveh can do nothing about a storm except hope to ride it out, right? So, yeah. And like you said, if, if the clouds are where God's feet is, then God is way up there, all right? Which is a very common image you see in the prophets. Okay. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Let's stop there. What's the imagery and what's the meaning? That would be very bad, yeah. And also, keep in mind, in terms of water, that water was something that was, for many groups, a very fearful thing, all right? Um, to get caught in a storm on land is bad. To get caught in the storm on a storm in the middle of the Mediterranean, all right, you might be dead, all right? There's a pretty good chance of that, especially if it's a really bad storm. Now, God here is over all of those things. Your source of sustenance and water, rivers, or just a source of sustenance, Mediterranean Sea, which is specifically going to be what we're talking about here, right? Can't use that for water to drink. It's salt water, right? Both for sustenance and that fearful thing that many are afraid to sail on, all right? God can just rebuke all of that. He could dry it all up, which is, once again, something that king of Nineveh had no ability to do. Is yeah. Nineveh a fishing town? It is not. Okay. Yeah, it is, it is landlocked. The sea would have been much more scary for them than it would have been for, like, Tyre, right? Naval, naval cities, not, not quite as fearful. For the Israelites, often quite fearful. For the Assyrians, certainly. Is it because... Yeah. They don't have a grasp on how the sea works and how to be more grounded, or does it have something to do with gods or spirits or scare them? I'm going to go with the yes on all of those because you've, uh, you've got a lot of imagery of sea monsters and whatnot in the Old Testament. Where would that come from? Well, that would come from primarily the Mediterranean Sea and fear related to that. And so all of that is going to be very normal in the culture. But it's not fearful to God. God can say, dry up, and it dress, dries up. All right, next, next set of images. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. What's our image there? Volcano is our image, right? At first, it's just kind of earthquake, right? Mountains quake, hills melt. Right? That's kind of a volcano imagery. But you definitely in the next verse, right? His wrath is poured out like fire. At what point do you see fire and broken rocks? All right? That's, this is very clearly volcanic type imagery. All right? And so, who can cause a volcano? Nineveh cannot cause a volcano. Who can cause a volcano? God can. 
He can tear up the mountains. He can destroy them. He can destroy the hills. He can cause earthquakes. He can split the mountains open and pour out his wrath like fire and break all the rocks into pieces. All right? So this first part is the start of a discussion about God. God can do all sorts of things that his enemies cannot do. Okay? So then let's move on. Verse 7. Quite contrast. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Think of the imagery of the flood. What's going on there? Why don't he just why doesn't he just say they're gonna die? Because, I mean, that is what he says in the next half, right? Judgment. What's the idea of a flood? It is it's totally, a, totally a judgment, all right? Overwhelming flood, all right? It's this wave coming at you, all right? It's an image of power, all right? If, if it's an, an image of something that's uncontrollable, all right? Once again, we have the Assyrians who cannot control all of these, all of these nature things. Here's another nature image. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries. Which is also not a gradual image, right? This is not a, you're going to die slowly over the next 70 years. This is a, here's a wave. Boom. You're gone. Overwhelming flood to destroy the adversaries. What about, and we'll pursue his enemies into darkness? What's this talking about? Well, here pretty much like the meteorological disasters of the sidewalk because there's no place to hide. That's true. Mountains flood, no place to hide. That's true. It says God is a refuge in times of trouble, but not the enemy. Yes. Right? This is talking about, of course, Judah, right? Now, what were you saying, Michael? Just like very deep waters or like darkness. So if he's flooding them, it's... You're going to be under all that water and therefore in the darkness, which is going to mean you are where? Dead. You are dead. You are going to Sheol, all right? Place of darkness. Okay? Uh, yes, sir. For these two verses, especially seven be drawing a contrast from the Lord's power and his um, overwhelming what's the word willingness to judge those who are evil and against him he mentions other ways he does that verses 8 through 12 and just showing that he will have mercy but because you are not on his side you should be wary of scary yes I think that is basically the idea because you've got that little glimmer of hope, but this, is, this hope is clearly not for the object of the oracle, right? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Do the Assyrians take refuge in... And this, is, this, is the coven, this is the covenant name of God. All right? do, the, do the Assyrians worship Yahweh? No. Who worships Yahweh? Pretty much just 
a subset, but <laughs> the Israelites, all right? Yahweh is the God of Israel of the Israelites, all right, or of Judah at this point, because Israel is, is ultimately no more at this point. So Yahweh, covenant God, all right, will protect those who are his worshipers. However, but with an overwhelming flowing flood will he be complete end of the adversaries and will pursue them into darkness. Verse 9, what do you plot against Yahweh? He will make a complete end and trouble will not rise up a second time. Can you plot against Yahweh? Yes. Can you rise up against Yahweh? Yes. What's going to happen? You're not going to rise up again twice, right? You can, sure, you can rise up against Yahweh. Crushed, right? You won't do it a second time. For they are like, this is an interesting one, all right? For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. Interesting. Yeah. For the ESV, they have for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards. That's what they. Well, NIV says they will be entangled in thorns. Yeah. Okay. The ESV has they are like entangled thorns. A little bit different. What uh, any other translations have any interesting renderings there? Okay. Now, what's that imagery? Have we seen thorns? It's unescapable. Right. When you get wild thorns or like wild berry bushes, things like that, if they grow close together, they get interwoven, and you can't just like separate one out easily. They're just kind of all entangled together. All right. Um, what does that have to do with like drunkards as they drink? What's the imagery? They're entangled in their sins, metaphorically, for sure. Any other thoughts on this one? This is a, this is a, a, I, I think it's, it's a really unusual juxtaposition of imagery. I think it's, it's interesting and so just strange. Okay, so you've got a party of, of drunken people. All right. You see, yep. You usually got a party of drunken people. They're not walking orderly in a line. All right. Who's what, who's the problem here? The problem here is Assyria. All right. The problem here is their armies. Armies are orderly, typically. All right. Good armies are orderly. Right. Um, they're gonna they're gonna obey their orders. They're gonna do what they're supposed to do. They're gonna walk in line. Uh, this is in contrast with the idea of a bunch of drunkards. All right. And the implication here is who's drunk. Assyria. The, the army of Assyria is like a bunch of drunkards. All right? How are they going to do? Well, next part. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. All right? We've all burned dry things and wet things. Things that are really dry burn super fast. All right? So the image here is, we've already seen this. The, the, you're going to be destroyed like a flood. It's just going to come and crush you. All right? Um, they're like entangled thorns. They're going to be consumed like that super fast. Whenever the time comes, it's going to happen. Now, one thing about this is this is this is 
probably a, a judgment given, all right, given the imagery, I think, of when Assyria is strong, all right? Assyria is like on top of the world at this point, literally. They are, well, not literally, okay. In terms of world power, they are dominant at this point. They will ultimately lose when people gang up against them later on. But they are dominant at this point, destroying everybody they want to destroy, and very wicked when they do so. And this judgment is coming against them and saying, you think you're strong? Well, guess what? Judgment's coming like a flood. You're going to be like a bunch of drunk people whenever it happens, and you're going to get wiped out. But still, they like entangled thorns and drunkards as they drink. You imagine drunks just sort of trying to go down the street and they're just sort of bumping into each other would be the idea, I suppose, there. Verse 11, for you come, for you came one who plotted evil against Yahweh, a worthless counselor. Thus says, the, thus says Yahweh, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Who are we talking about in this verse? Judah. Right? That's the last half, right? We're switching. And so what's fun is some translations in various points will insert, and that's a good case, of something that's definitely not there in the text. Like the NIV in various points... Uh, we'll put O Nineveh like in the bulk of this chapter, like not the very first, to make it clear when it's talking to you, it's talking to Nineveh. But you've got in the middle of this verse a subject change. Though they are at full strength and are many, that's not Judah. All right? They will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. And you know this because of the next verse. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. All right? So this is a clear reference to, well, I guess it's Judah. We find out for sure it's Judah in a few verses. All right? Whoever is being delivered in this particular case, all right, the imagery is, well, what is the imagery here? What's the status of the afflicted one? They're yoked. They're yoked. All right? What does that mean? Now, they're slaves. Go back to the agricultural metaphor. So they're basically like, they're like a donkey or an oxen, right? So the Assyrians have the, the good guys, Judah, all right, yoked up to do work for them. That's the image. You're basically slaves. You're, you're, no better, you're no better than an ox. You're no better than a donkey to these Assyrians. But no more, all right? God will come in, break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Who are we talking about now? What's that? Back to Assyria, right? He's just switching. You, 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 you. But here, clearly not talking about Judah. No more shall your name be perpetuated. And this is where this one comes from. All right. This is where the KGV says, no more of thy name be sown. That's the imagery. ESV is like, some readers may not get that, I guess. So I'll just 
spell this out for them so that they don't miss it, right? Those dumb ESV readers, they just won't get it. So I'll just spell it, all right? NetBible has something very similar. Uh, but then again, that is the NetBible's MO. It's like, I'm going to take your imagery, and I'm going to remove your imagery, and, return, and replace it with the actual non-imagery meaning. All right? what, what, we want you to understand, not appreciate the poetry so much. That, that's more of the focus there. So the Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. No more shall it be sown. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the middle image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. I will make your grave. Man, that's menacing. Yeah. So the, the NIV says you will have no descendants to bear your name. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think you lose something if you become too literal about it. Because if you've got no more will your name be sown in relation to a kingdom, it can just be about spread, right? Like no more will everything mm-hmm. become Assyria okay. instead of just like Assyrians aren't going to have kids anymore. I think it can be kind of both. So you've got two ideas. Three, three possible ideas, right? One... The nation idea. Your nationwide wise, your nation will no longer trample everybody and take over. That's one. Two, all the Assyrians to a man will die. It didn't happen. That's not it. Or three, it could be a specific address to the king, the leadership of Nineveh, saying, your name is not going to be sown because you and all of your, your, your line of descendants is caught, cut off at this point. So it really could be any of those. Probably not the, all the Assyrians will get wiped out. That didn't happen. Generally speaking, when ancient nations conquered other ancient nations, usually they did not wipe them out because if you kill them all, you can't use them for slaves and taxes, right? Israel, that was supposed, they were supposed to be different, right? When they were going into the promised land, they were supposed to wipe everybody out. But generally speaking, it doesn't make sense if you're Babylon and you're going to conquer Nineveh to just kill everybody. Where's your, where's your money? So, yeah, you're either going to have, therefore, of the three, either Assyria is no longer going to be the ruler and their name perpetuated, or a reference to the, ruling, the rulers of Assyria, right? And that would be common, common to do, right? If you go and you take over a nation, who do you want to take over and, and kill? You want to take over the leadership and wipe them out. They're the problem, all right? Because if you take out the leadership, then generally speaking, the people will then pay their taxes and be your soldiers and your slaves and things like that. Sudden shift, verse 15. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. So at this point, we actually see who is actually being acted towards in mercy by God. Keep your feasts, O Judah. As opposed to the northern kingdom. They're gone at this point. They're gone. So keep your feast, O Judah. Blessed, behold, upon the mountains the feet of him who publishes, who brings good news, who publishes peace. Where is? Where do we see this verse elsewhere? Do we know? You might have cross references in your Bibles. Does it? Does it say that the beginning of uh, verse fifteen is is referenced anywhere? 
Oh, so that's what your note says? Yeah, that's true. The Hebrew text breaks the chapter. Chapter Verse 15 of chapter 1 is verse 1 of chapter 2 in Hebrew. But where, So when somebody said New Testament. This, this verse kind of shows up. Romans 10, 15. Okay, where else? In the Old Testament. Isaiah. Isaiah, right? So this is very similar to what you see in Isaiah 52. All right? Um, Let's go ahead and turn there. Isaiah 52, 7. Let's go check. Let's go check. Isaiah 52. Now here, the context is different. In Isaiah, you might recall, uh, this is about Judah once again, but we're talking about different bad guys in this case. In Isaiah 52, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall be no more into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. That's very similar, right, to that verse, but we're not to the feet part yet. We'll get to the feet. Shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Okay, they were in exile in Egypt, Exodus, excuse me, in Egypt. They were in exile by the Assyrians. Then they were in exile by Babylon. The Assyrians is the second one. This is talking about the coming out of the Babylonian exile. And it's like, here's Egypt, okay, then there's Assyria, okay. Now, this, what about this particular return from exile, alright? This is the third one. This would be the Babylonian. And their rulers wail, verse, uh, this is verse 5, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in the day that they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes in salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Okay, let's think about that idea. What does it mean for, for the God of Jerusalem to reign? Usually it means good things for his people. Right? Usually. Unless they're under discipline. That means good things for his people. And so when it's talking here about the, Israel, about the Judahites who are captive in Babylon and coming back, don't worry. Your God reigns on Zion. This is actually, you will come back from exile. You will be saved because no one can stop God. Now, if we take this idea back to Nahum, this will be a previous event. All right. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. All right. Here's the image. You're in Jerusalem. You're worried. All right. Did the Assyrians attack Jerusalem? Yes, they did. All right. They didn't win, but they did attack Jerusalem. Here's the good news. The feet on the mountains. Jerusalem is in the mountains. All right. On the, you, got, you see somebody running, a messenger running up to the city who brings good news, who publishes peace. 
Keep your feast, Judah. Fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. All right? Good news. Assyria conquered. All right? I don't think we should read this same way with the other one in Isaiah. I don't think we should read this as, therefore, no unclean person will ever enter the city of Jerusalem again. All right? Because clearly that happened. All right? That definitely happened. That happened after the Assyrian ex- or the Assyrian problem because of the Babylonians. All right? You get actually that same imagery in Revelation when it's talking about entering the, the new city of Jerusalem. No more shall the unclean come into you. What's the idea here? It's not that an unclean person never enters the city of Jerusalem again. It's this, specifically in Nahum, this unclean country is not going to be walking through your streets. Why? Cut off like a flood. Overwhelmed. Destroyed. Go into darkness. God will, God will make their grave. All, right? All of the various images we see here, good news, they're not going to walk into your city as conquering warriors. They're going to be dead. Chapter 2, the scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts. Watch the road. Dress for battle. Collect all your strength. But that's for next time. We're out of time. All right, so we'll continue with Nahum next time. Read, read through it. It's, it's very short. Three chapters. You've got a page and a half at this point. We'll walk through it. We'll talk about the imagery. Focus on that. Try to understand what's the metaphors. All right? What's, what's going on here? Um, Now you know the historical circumstance, right? This is generally talking about the destruction of Nineveh, which will fall in 612. So it's before then, after 722, because we're talking about Judah, and before 612. And before the time of Babylon. Any questions before we dismiss? Any questions about this text? Okay. Then let's be dismissed. Jonathan, will you pray for us, please? Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we all got here safely. We ask that you would protect us on our way home, that we would learn well from our teachers today, and that everyone who is not going to be here today, that you would keep them safe, whether they're sick, injured, traveling, etc. We ask that you would bless us and bless this communion and time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.